Welcome to Ethics Now, conversations about ethics. We should remember that ethics is a celebratory practice. It's something to be excited about. It's something to be motivated and inspired by. Ethics shouldn't be thought of as restrictions on some selfish goal of well-being. No, there's a collective goal of well-being that will intensify the beauty of life for as many people as possible. I'm Kathleen Sabo, and in this episode, we'll take a look at ethics in everyday life. Have you ever wondered what stops you when you're in a grocery store from taking more toilet paper than you need, even when you can? Why you don't head out in the middle of the night and clip your neighborhood park's beautiful flowers for yourself? Why you choose to cover your mouth when you cough? Maybe it's your ethics. Ethics? What is that? Perhaps the most oft-heard quote about ethics is from the former United States Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. It goes like this. Ethics is knowing the difference between what you have the right to do and what is right to do. Sounds good, right? There's something you can do, but you choose not to. Why? What are you thinking about? What are you tapping into or consulting? when you make these choices. Might we suggest it's your ethics? Many people's introduction to ethics comes in the form of an academic course found in the philosophy section of your school's course catalog. If you're lucky, you heard the word mentioned earlier on in a discussion of citizenship or being a good neighbor. If you're luckier, you've been taught to apply it to some other discipline, such as technology or medicine, journalism, or law. But choices to apply ethical principles abound in everyday life, at the grocery store, in your neighborhood, in public and private settings. Here to help us explore this topic are Dr. Will Barnes and attorney Paul Biederman. Welcome to both of you. Thank you very much, Kathleen. Good to be here. Hi, Kathleen. Yeah, thanks a lot for the invitation to take part in the program. We could say that the two of you can be distinguished somewhat as being involved with public or applied ethics versus the philosophy of ethics. What would be great today is if we can find and explore that sweet spot where the two meld. And the first place of commonality is that each of you have taught ethics. Dr. Will Barnes, you have a PhD and master's in philosophy from UNM, the University of New Mexico. Tell us about the teaching of ethics you have undertaken and with whom, please. Sure thing. Yeah, thanks again for having me here. So I first began teaching formally in the University of New Mexico in 2010, where I would be teaching critical thinking and ethics, combining the thought of analyzing arguments, assessing our intuitive responses. And through teaching ethics for a long time, I've realized that I think that's a fundamental part of it. So I taught at UNM for just under 10 years. I then moved over to the East Coast. I taught a junior ethics course in LaSalle University. This is a course where every student in the third year goes through this ethics course. And I've taught ethics in Curry College in Massachusetts, where I taught to police officers and nurses and non-traditional students in general, as well as undergraduate. And I've also taught at Bentley University in Boston as well, primarily focusing on the teaching of ethics. So mostly in an academic setting. Other than bugging my friends and family with ethical questions and ideas, formally, yes, in an academic setting. 
Attorney Paul Biederman, tell us about the teaching of ethics you have undertaken and with whom, please. Well, thank you, Kathleen. I'm so glad that you're doing this program for the benefit of of folks who are listening and will benefit from it a lot. My teaching has been through the law school at the University of New Mexico in this respect. I started a program for educating judges in 1991. And my primary area of personal teaching, a lot of what I did was management, but the personal teaching I did was largely in ethics for the judges at all levels of the courts and and for court clerks as well. And since retiring from uh, UNM in in 2011, I have been teaching for New Mexico State University's program, again, not as an academic, but teaching for an outreach program they do for county officials and and employees primarily about public ethics for public officials. So the kinds of things that people from counties in particular run into. So I've been developing and teaching those classes to, to those folks throughout the last 10 years. Paul, when you teach a class on ethics, you you probably get a lot of people who have been exposed to the concept of ethics or even an ethical code. How do you get them to understand what ethics actually is, though? How do you distill it down and define it? Yeah, I don't do a lot of... I do some classes that, that do explore, in a very basic level, some ethical concepts. But I think most of the people who take our class or our classes are really interested in applying ethics to their jobs. They want to be able to think ethically as they're doing their work so that ethics becomes a factor in their decisions and in the work they do. What I do is work from a lot of examples, a lot of hypotheticals, but realistic types of hypotheticals, the kinds of things that they encounter every day. We talk about those hypotheticals, and instead of just asking, how do I get it done? How do I get it done fast? And, you know, how do I get the best results? We also talk about, wait a minute, what are the ethical considerations that go into those decisions and into the actions we take to make sure that's a factor apart from just the efficiency issues? Well, it sounds like the people you're teaching want to apply ethics in everyday life which again is the topic of this program, so completely apropos. Will, when you teach an ethics class at a college or university, how do you get your students to understand what ethics actually is? How do you distill it down and define it? I would define ethics initially with a little bit of etymology. So the Greek word ethics means custom. And the study of ethics as it was developed in the Greek tradition is studying and turning into practice certain ideas that enable one to lead a good life. So when we're talking about what a good life is, I usually use a straightforward method from Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics to get my students to think about the fact that they're already invested in this. And this is his theory of action. So I ask my students a simple question, why did you come to the classroom? You know, there's a bit of a giggle at first because some of them might be kind of shy to say, well, I came because I had to, but actually I mean the question literally. And you get people to answer this question. Why did you come to the class? Well, I need to get a good grade. Why do I want a good grade? I want to pass the course. Why do you want to pass the course? I turn into the annoying eight-year-old, right? Saying why, why, why after every answer. And this question gets further and further into someone's conception, usually of something like happiness and a good human life. That's the sort of end point of all of our decisions. Why are you doing anything? There's a short-term answer, but you keep answering that question. Why do you want to pass your degree? Well, I want a good job. Why do you want a good job? Well, I want a certain degree of comfort. Why do you want a certain degree of comfort? And there comes a point where this question makes 
no sense anymore. Why do you want to be happy? Right? That's the question that doesn't make any sense anymore. And so students reach this point, and I say, this is what Aristotle said. He said, all of our actions are oriented towards some perhaps inchoate, ill-developed idea of what we think the good is. And we're acting in accordance with that growing idea of the good all the time. So that's how I introduce my students to the fact that you're all ethicists in this way. We're all doing this all the time, so why not get a bit clearer on it and get a bit more precise? So after I've introduced that idea, I'll then delineate some of the famous theories, but usually piece by piece alongside more practical examples to remind people that we are all budding ethicists. The study of ethics is not a discipline that one chooses to partake in. I think it's fair to say we're all invested in it and involved in it with every little decision. So revealing that and then showing that thinking about ethics is improving the idea to improve and clarify something that we're already doing. That's how I get my students interested, hopefully. Well, I'm curious because when we think about developing a good life for ourselves, obviously we're thinking about ourselves. How do you get them to go beyond thinking about themselves? Well, that's a really important question. And that happens through teaching the history of ethics because that becomes a preoccupation. The Greeks were invested in a combined notion of selflessness and altruism. So for the Greeks, cultivating meaningful relationships with others and contributing and being embedded in a social structure is fundamental to individual happiness. So from that perspective, the question is not distinct. Later on, though, as we get into the Christian traditions and we get into other ethical traditions within the Western paradigm, there's this idea that one has to make some kind of self-sacrifice to be ethical or to be moral. And so the your question, how do you get people to do that? You can do that a number of ways. You can use this historical account of how being invested in the well-being of others is to be invested in your own well-being. Or the more fundamental question, the sort of pressure point that you can put on, is just to ask people, do you think you are more important than other people? And very few people will actually say yes. And so that's the instinct. That's the ethical instinct that we all have. I think some kind of notion of other people's suffering, other people's joy is no less significant or important than my own. So that's the sort of critical point, I think, to explode that idea that we should be thinking about others at least as well as ourselves. Paul, when you first get your students into your classroom or your course, are they thinking about themselves or are they thinking about others as well? I think it's not so much of their thinking of themselves as how they're viewing their work, because that is the focus of my teaching. And I think they are viewing their work as, here's my assignments, here's my duties to the public, here's what I'm supposed to get done today. And don't think so much about, well, how do I do the right thing? Or the contrast you pointed out right at the beginning, it's the contrast between doing the right thing and, and doing things right. Doing the right thing may mean how to get it done efficiently, get it done according to the rules. Doing things right means also taking into account the impacts on people. How does it match up with our responsibilities to the public, to, to the staff that work with us, and so on? So I, I think in that sense, people may come in more focused on getting their jobs done in the right way, in the sense that it follows the rules, but not necessarily thinking about what is the right thing to be doing from the public interest standpoint. And that's where I try to address my work, my class, my teaching. 
You know, one thought or even goal about this is that it assists listeners in exploring their thoughts and actions about ethics so that when they come upon an ethical situation in their everyday lives, they've had a chance to consider first that this is an ethical situation, an aha moment, and then that they already have a sense of their personal ethics and how they might wish to respond ethically to the situation before them. But, you know, aside from one-shot classes you might teach, semester-long classes you might teach or otherwise, we don't have these conversations about ethics a lot. In fact, I'll, I'll let the listeners know that this is our second time recording this episode because when we sat down the first time to have this conversation, we didn't quite know how to do it. We weren't really accustomed to it. And it took us a while to sort of get into the flow and realize that we're already dealing with these ethical situations all the time. We can talk about them. We can talk about them like we talk about a lot of other issues amongst our friends. Will, it sounds like maybe you might tend to have these conversations about ethics more than others with people in, in your life, but what are you finding these days? Are people wanting to talk about ethics? One of the reasons I think people might not talk about ethics so much, and I wouldn't say that this is a particularly new phenomena, is that there's a difference between talking about specific examples that we have an ethical opinion about and then talking about ethics externally, right? So questions like, what are your ethics? Why are we not ethical? What is the foundation of ethics? What is the right thing? What's ultimately the difference between the right and the wrong thing? And that that itself is a very threatening question. I think there's a human instinct when someone asks us to sort of justify our moral reasoning, that people take that as a kind of a threat, a challenge to their personhood. And also people are afraid that if we critique and expose and think deeply about the foundations of our ethical thought, that we're sort of risking some kind of traditional set of beliefs that we should be trying to uphold. I think that's one of the reasons why people are resistant. Another more colloquial reflection, I suppose, is that for whatever reason, ethical topics are pretty non-mainstream. We're talking about the media. News and journalism, rightly so, is required to stay away from making ethical evaluations. And then the complete other contrast is you have social media, which is entirely uncritical moral evaluations thrown around willy-nilly. And so I think perhaps those of us who would like to have more careful ethical discussions find ourselves in this network of very defensive and even aggressive ways of thinking about ethics. You have to be open-minded and you have to be willing to take criticism to have a meaningful discussion about ethics. And these are difficult things for all of us to do. I think it takes training. It takes the right kind of leadership and guidance. And maybe those things, if they're not lacking, they are definitely something that we should, as always, be emphasizing and trying to improve. You know, one thing that those of us affiliated with Ethics Watch noticed, well, certainly when the pandemic began, and maybe it's because we're more attuned than others to listening or tuning into ethics, is that people wanted to talk about it more. You know, whether it was medical ethics or the example at the top of the of the show about toilet paper. You know, is it ethical to take more than you need? So we saw that. And Paul, I'm curious whether just in your everyday life, 
people wanted to talk about ethics. Well, it's funny you ask that because when I mention what I mentioned to you at the outset, the kind of ethics work that I do, I get uh, interesting responses from people. And the responses are often, oh, you're teaching, you're teaching government people, you're teaching judges to be ethical. Well, how does that work out? People that I talk to can be very cynical about ethics in government. Why? Because there's a few examples of people who have not been ethical, people who take advantage of their power, people who you know do things from misusing credit cards, government credit cards for personal use, all the way up to embezzlement. And that's what they focus on, the occasional example that sticks out as opposed to the vast majority of public servants who are quite ethical in their everyday life and never even think twice about doing the right thing because they don't think they have to. It's intuitive. And they just do the right thing and do things right as well because they are public servants and, and view their responsibilities that way and they were brought up well. Do you think people see, though, that these people who are commenting on you teaching classes to, to judges or government officials, do you think they see that they are constantly surrounded with their own ethical decisions in their everyday lives? Or is it just easier to look outside and perhaps criticize or observe others? I think that often people may talk about ethical issues without realizing that they're talking about ethics. They will tend to just address the situation in front of them without really digging deeper into what ethical principles are involved, but rather take for granted what the ethical rules are and then decide whether it's professional or, or office-based or whether it's just personal, whether those are ethical things, but they never, nev never mention the word ethics. Right. Will, you wanted to comment? Yeah, I was just thinking about an analysis by a French philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was asked during the Enlightenment period to answer the question, have our morals developed as quickly as our technology? And he was writing in a time when the perspective on human morality was very much this idea that we are sort of by nature selfish and aggressive and cruel, and that we need to be punished into moral behavior. And he was writing against this idea and said quite the opposite, actually. When humans' needs are met, natural ethical attitudes towards one another, so this is the question as to being ethical rather than talking about ethics, natural attitudes of sympathy and compassion occur to us once our basic needs are met. And so his analysis of this moral decadence of his time was that people's needs were not being met. And I think this is an important point of analysis that in our society today that's dominated by materialism, by success, and for the vast majority of people living in turbo capitalism all over the world, we're living in situations of increased precariousness. And that increased precariousness serves as an obstacle for our egalitarian, compassionate, and more ethical virtues to flourish. So I don't know if things are worse than they have been before. That's always one of those historically impossible questions to finally analyze. But if there is obstacles to our ethical behavior, as well as thinking about ethics, I think material conditions such as economic precariousness are probably a likely factor. Well, let's continue to take away the obstacle about talking about ethics here with the two of you. You're listening to Ethics Now. I'm your host, Kathleen Sabo. Will Barnes, I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. Before we dig into how and why to take ethics into the mainstream, into everyday life, I feel that there is some richness, there are some 
underpinnings. There's some foundation. We may want to take along with us on our exploration of ethics in everyday life. Will, could you tell us some of the theoretical resources for thinking about ethics that we might want to return to at various points? Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. Now, of course, there are multiple ethical theories from all the philosophical traditions of the world. But when I'm teaching philosophy, we usually begin with four central theories. The first of these is called deontology, which focuses on the duties, rights, and obligations that stem from reason, and often takes the form of the thought, what if everyone acted under the same moral principle lying behind my proposed action? Would that world be livable? Would it be desirable? Would it be good? If not, then I should not act on this principle and come up with one that could be made into a law for all to follow. The second is called consequentialism, which asks us to consider the consequences of our actions in relation to some good, and response to this consideration discipline our actions such that they are more likely to contribute to the collective good. Usually this is some notion of happiness, pleasure, or well-being. The third is virtue ethics, which comes from the ancient Greek tradition, which focuses instead of on individual actions, on cultivating qualities of character likely to contribute to collective well-being and excellence, focusing instead then of on actions and what is right or wrong, but rather on the cultivation of helpful virtues such as compassion, friendliness, modesty, practical wisdom, etc., The fourth is called care ethics, which developed out of feminist ethics, which was critical of certain elements of these other theories. Care ethics, though independent now from feminist ethics, focuses on the fact that we are fundamentally dependent upon others and vulnerable, and that working out how best to care for others in light of this interdependency should be the goal and the foundation of our ethical thought. There are other ethical traditions from the non-Western canon. Buddhist ethics, for example, focuses on utilizing means to transform us from self-oriented thinking to other-oriented thinking. That's excellent. But my question is, how will being aware of and understanding these concepts, even a little bit, help our listeners when confronted with an ethical question? It depends on the person and it depends on the situation. But I think these ethical theories help us clarify our existing moral intuitions, even to criticize some of those moral intuitions, and they give us a bit of guidance in a specific situation. So let me give an example. If we were to talk about something like immigration policy, and we were to make an appeal to the history of feminist ethics and its idea of oppression, to oppress somebody is when you do not treat them as a free, independent being with a right to guide their own life. You reduce somebody to a limited description of themselves. So the policy of immigration, we often talk about illegal immigrants. The idea from feminist ethics would be to define somebody as illegal or legal is fundamentally oppressive in itself. And so these kind of concepts like oppression or happiness or what are the motivations for my actions give us a simple framework or a simpler framework than just being thrown into a very complicated ethical situation and have to make a choice. These are sort of conceptual tools which hopefully enable us to simplify and clarify our ethical thinking. Paul, you teach ethics, but not as a air quotes academic per se. Sitting here and listening to these theoretical underpinnings of ethics, do you recognize how, if at all, these theories Will has briefly described inform your teaching? Yes, actually, we do a little of that in our 
classes. When I teach the classes for New Mexico State University, it's towards a certificate. And we offer about a dozen classes that people can choose from. And uh, at least one of those classes, we actually have a conversation uh, much along the lines that Will has just described about the different uh, approaches to ethical thinking. And what I try to do, again, is to integrate that into people's daily decisions that they make so that they're thinking in ethical terms and not just in terms of following the rules. So one distinction I draw, although I don't always identify the theory, is look at dualism. Dualism being there's right and there's wrong, and you always want to do the right. And especially when you're interpreting a law, if you follow the law strictly, you're doing the right thing. If you don't follow it exactly the way it's written, you're doing the wrong thing. And there's no other questions. I've seen people use that, apply that very rigidly. And it leaves out questions of compassion. It leaves out questions of individual circumstances that might cause variations. But basically, I want people to think ethically beyond just what's written on the page. Think ethically about the application. What are the consequences of that application and if it's done too strictly? So yeah, we very much integrate those kinds of ideas into our classes. Will, was ethics designed to be a highbrow, conceptual set of principles to ponder? Or was it meant to be something that everyday people could grasp and apply to their lives? I think ethics was designed, if we can say that, with a few goals in mind. And I think if we look at the Western tradition, for example, if we look at virtue theory, deontology, and consequentialism, the aspiration behind all of these traditions is to find the foundations of our already generally well-guided moral intuitions. So these ethical theories do not see themselves as superior to or distinct from everyday ethical thought and practice. They're rather an attempt to clarify and simplify what the foundations are to enable us to find it a bit more comprehensible and straightforward to deal with these very complicated moral issues. Nevertheless, these theories do get very complicated and they do get even potentially alienating due to their complexity, particularly deontology. So there, I think, to make the connection in teaching these theories, one has to use examples, one has to immediately show the applications, and one also has to show through certain thought experiments key elements of the ethical theories themselves. But my point is that although it may be difficult to use these ethical theories to apply them in everyday life, that's not necessarily a weakness of the ethical theories. It's actually the fact that ethical theories expose the complexity of a lot of our moral thinking and, if we're honest, the problematic, conflicted and contradictory nature of a lot of our ethical thinking. So they were designed to help us live better lives, but it's a different question as to how successfully and how easily they do so. And a lot of that lies on the applier of the theories as much as it does to the theories themselves. Will, you insinuated at one point in, during your answer that we, people, have a tendency toward the good. And, and yet we hear Paul say that when people talk to him about teaching judges or government officials, they tend to be cynical about it. Maybe they don't even assume that they will act for the good. So how do we reconcile that, that we tend toward the good, and yet Paul sort of revealing that a lot of people don't think that about other people? Well, I think, although it may seem counterintuitive at first, cynicism and the kind of rigid moralizing that Paul is critiquing are two sides of the same coin. 
They both regard the world as corrupt in some sense. And while the rigid moralist sort of aggressively asserts a dogmatic framework, the cynic aggressively asserts a dogmatic framework and then conceives of it as impossible and resigns in the face of it. Both of these perspectives are invested in the good. To put it simply, a cynic is traumatized. A cynic has perceived values in the world fail on repeated occasion. And rather than accept the challenge of living up to the difficulty of acting in accordance with those values, denies their plausibility, denies their applicability as a sort of ameliorative solution to the problems we face. So the solution is to appreciate that although there are dangers in rigidly applying a moral framework with no wiggle room, and there is huge dangers with giving up on a dogmatic framework of morality by assuming that it would fail, we need to have that critical space between the two, being invested in the good, being invested in the right, but also being willing to admit that we don't have all the answers concerning what is right and what is wrong. And maybe there aren't absolute answers to what is right and what is wrong. And to hold that critical consciousness in mind with the honesty that we are all invested in some conception of the good. So we can't let go of that. However cynical we might want to be, however nihilistic we try and become, it's always an illusion because it's prefaced on some belief in the way things should be. So it's a combination, continuing to work for the way things should be, but also being critical concerning your own conception of the way things should be. And I would say also being democratic about that, being more inclusive of a wider range of perspectives whilst retaining your convictions but applying critique to those convictions and being willing to participate in open dialogue with those with whom we disagree. To carry it further, there is another source of that in our current, and I knew this was going to come up eventually. There's another source of that cynicism, and that is the media, the media and the people who promote the media to their political ends, mostly political, through social media, through television stations that are particularly aggressive in sending messages through politicians. I'm afraid that our society is just awash in some very powerful and very effective forces that unfortunately are guiding people in unethical ways. They're feeding them with a lot of ideas and attitudes and, and anger towards opponents. And that's really the polarization that we're facing in our society now. So are you, are you saying they'd rather focus on what's not good versus what is good in people? And then that becomes sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction to assume that others are not working for the good? Yes, that and specifically to use that to political advantage. I think the examples are confirmation hearings for Supreme Court justice that just hammer away at one thing that sounds like it's a problem, but in the end turns out to be a very minor factor and even not even a factor at all. It's just something that can inflame people's concerns and, and attitudes in a way that really undermines public confidence in those officials when they take office. So is a way around this to have these everyday conversations about ethics with the people we know, where we approach it from the point of saying we have good inclinations, we have good within us, we want to act ethically. Is that a way around it? Maybe that plus acknowledging that people make mistakes sometimes. And when they do make mistakes, hammering away at it, and especially people in public office, which I, of course, focus on. That's why I keep raising it. 
But hammering away because somebody has made a mistake or taken a a step that people don't agree with and just exploding the implications of that decision for political advantage only, people aren't thinking about the long-term effects of that. The long-term effects are what I encounter, people complaining with cynicism about politics, about people in government office. Well, I've been in government office. I was a cabinet secretary. And I know the hard decisions that are made, sometimes we get them wrong. Sometimes we have do things that have bad consequences. If people hammer, it really discourages people from even going to public office and especially running for office. Nobody is so pristine in their record of life that there's not something that can't be used against them. And if that is just like rubbing salt in a wound, if people do that to their political advantage, everybody comes away thinking that all politicians are bad, all politics is bad, all all public officials are out for themselves. And again, because people are hammering away at these issues as if there's no other side to the individuals involved and, and implying that their intentions are really bad, no matter what good they may have done. And Paul, I think we can extend that not just to all politicians or government, but any segment of society, you name it, any way you want to parse out society, then that can certainly be what people focus on. Will you want to comment? Yeah, I'd just like to make a reference to a element of Buddhist ethics that I find hugely influential and helpful for myself personally in relation to a particular story. So I was in my hometown of Leeds during the time where I was studying for a master's in Buddhist philosophy. And I was out for a drink with a couple of friends of mine who work in construction. And one of these guys who I'd never met before, upon hearing that I studied Buddhist philosophy, got extremely angry with me and assumed that I was for the torture of Westerners by Islamic fundamentalists. And this was an absurd objection, and he was extremely angry and right in my face, and it was, you know, it was very confusing and threatening. And my first instinct was to sort of, oh, I understand this person, negatively categorize them and reduce them to that explanation. So what Paul is saying is a problem in our media of just fixating on one thing about a person. Later that night, I found out that this guy's family had actually died in a house fire that was started by someone who was a member of the Muslim faith. And so completely absurd opinion, completely uneducated opinion, but born of a profound and disturbing trauma. And once I realized that his aggression was acting out this profound trauma, any anger I had or any judgment I had towards him uh, dissipated. And I was reading a favorite book of mine, the Bodhi Acharavatara, which is a Buddhist text. It's the That's a Sanskrit title, meaning essentially the path to the practice of enlightenment. And there the author Shantideva talks about this double standards morality, that we should adopt a double standards morality. And it goes the following way, is that when I realized that this guy's aggressive and ignorant behavior had causes and conditions behind it that explain it, that are completely disconnected to the actual moment that I was in that, where my ego was involved, and realized that everybody's behavior is determined by causes and conditions in a certain way, helps to remove that instinct to judge others and reduce them in isolation to this particular action. So that's the one standard that you should try and judge other people's behavior on the assumption that there are reasons for why everybody's behaving the way they are. However, once you realize that about yourself, 
once you realize that your behavior is determined, that gives you a certain freedom to go against those kind of harmful and ethical forms of behavior. And I love this model. So it's double standards morality. To put it simply, it's judge yourself much more harshly than you judge others. But it's with a philosophical foundation of if someone is acting in such a way, they are not free from the causes and conditions getting them to behave unethically. When you realize in the moment that you are for whatever luck and privilege, free of the kind of causes that compel someone to behave destructively and harmfully and aggressively, that you have a sort of heightened responsibility to retain that. And I think that's a very unfashionable and unpopular perspective on ethics, this idea of assume there are good causal explanations for their unethical behavior, but never assume that about yourself. Well, thank you for, for bringing that to our attention. Welcome back to Ethics Now, conversations about ethics. I'm Kathleen Sabo. I mentioned a few examples previously of situations that give us a choice between what we can do and what we choose to do. Number one, taking or not taking more toilet paper from the grocery store than we need. Number two, choosing to cover our mouths when we cough. Paul and Will, do you have any to add that have percolated up for you? I've got a few ideas along those lines, and I think it's an excellent question because it really talks to ethics. When I talk about public officials who have ethics laws to deal with, and I talk to them, and the ethics laws only go so far in preventing certain types of conduct, but beyond what the ethics laws provide are ethical principles that people may or may not choose to apply. There are not going to be any legal consequences if they don't apply them correctly. So that's where an ethical sense, an internal ethical sense comes in. So an example could be when a public officials are having a meeting that is going to decide something very important, for example, they actually, they do have to do that in the open. There's a law that says that. The law doesn't say that they have to actually give people a chance to comment. People can go and observe, but they don't necessarily have to give them the right to comment and say anything about it. But Officials often go beyond. In fact, most meetings I've gone to, people recognize that it's not a good idea to silence people and prevent them from offering their ideas once they're observing this. And they need to get at least a minimal opportunity to say something. So they go beyond what the law requires. And I think that comes from an ethical sense about transparency in government. Paul, I find it interesting that you mentioned ethical principles, and we can sort of dig into that a little bit. But Will, I want to know if you have any examples that have percolated to the top for you. Yeah, for sure. One question that always sits with me is the questions about professional careers, and that I've seen lots of people choose careers that I think are straightforwardly ethically questionable. And I think this is a great example in our society where there are things that we can do that perhaps we should be asking questions about whether we should do. To put it simply, anyone working in marketing and advertising, trying to convince people to buy things that they probably don't need, that's a harsh way of thinking about it. But people who work in the financial industry, people who work in corporate law, people who work in a range of professions that don't really contribute anything meaningfully to addressing the crisis that we're living in concerning inequality, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always something that's interested and concerned me, how the decision for personal economic benefit, that's something I can do. 
But the question is, should we be holding up and perpetuating certain destructive industries? Should we be going for these kind of professions? Should we be oriented primarily towards the acquisition of material wealth? Or should we be thinking about how we can contribute to our communities and our environment through our work? Yeah, go ahead, Paul. I'd like to pick up on what Will just said in this sense. I think that there is a contribution, and I and I don't really hear you saying otherwise. I just want to clarify this. There is a contribution that people make when they provide goods and services for people in their communities. As I thought about it, capitalism is very competitive. It can be cutthroat. It can hurt people. You know, people maybe doing just fine and doing the right things to everybody, and then it turns out that they're squeezed out by somebody who's more aggressive. There are a lot of problems with it. But there is one thing that I've thought about, and that is quite a few revolutions, quite a few societal upheavals have occurred at the instigation of middle class people because they don't feel they have the opportunity to, it, it's not necessarily the poor, it's people who, who feel that they're lacking the opportunity to really achieve. People like that could try to be very aggressive and try to achieve their goals through aggressive means if there's nothing else available. If you can channel that kind of energy, that kind of ambition into a, a different uh, phase by saying you can make money and you can achieve your goals through a capitalist system because it allows you to be aggressive and, and develop a business as long as you obey the rules. That may be a way to channel some of that energy that could otherwise be very destructive for people. I just think that may have been part of what helped the capitalist system emerge. There are a lot of controls needed to make sure that capitalism is not oppressive. I understand that. But I do think that the system itself, we kind of forget why it was originally adopted. And I think this is one of them, that it, it gives people a chance who previously were themselves oppressed by a royalty who had all the controls of the economy, all the controls of society at their fingertips, and nobody else could break in because they weren't born right. So capitalism is a democratic process in that way. And, and I think the sweet spot is to both recognize and honor that, and at the same time to put on the controls to avoid oppressiveness over concentration of economic power and so on. Well, and Will, I know I've heard you refer to turbo capitalism. So I, I assume when you're talking about that, you're speaking not about this system that was developed to give those who hadn't had an opportunity an opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I, I think Paul and I have very similar perspectives when it comes down to it. And while I may be highly critical of capitalism at times, I think the point Paul is making that the satisfaction of individual, even selfish desires to improve one's material situation are perfectly compatible with a healthy, democratic, and ethical society if we have the right regulations in place. And I think Paul would probably agree that we do not have the right regulations in place in our current form of advanced turbo capitalism. And by that, we mean the capitalism that took over with Reaganomics right in the 70s and 80s with neoconservatism and neoliberalism, privatizing industries, and actually removing the conditions for the democratic decision-making about what elements of our society should be privatized and what shouldn't. And worst of all, the spiraling, out-of-control financial absurdity of the American political system, where although in essence it's democratic, one has to be wealthy to the point probably of significant hereditary wealth to even take part 
in politics at the higher level. And I think there are huge obstacles to achieving the kind of democratic, ethically regulated capitalism that Paul is speaking of. You know, when I hear you talk about regulations, right regulations in place, I also think, let's have ethics in place. And when I think about common threads between situations, one of the things that arises for me, and and we've talked about this with everybody from students who try to bring up common threads about ethical situations or unethical situations to you all, I think about concern for the other. So there is some point where we say, great, I've got my opportunity. And then it seems ethical, does it not? to turn the focus outside of ourselves. And that, that to me, would go a long way towards curbing some of the excesses that you all have brought to light. It's a scary situation when what you're proposing is actually so radical, in the sense that if we had a general concern for the other, a general concern for community, a general concern for equality and human well-being, that could we improve our societies? Could we improve our institutions? Could we stave off the calamities of environmental devastation and spiraling socioeconomic quality? I think you're absolutely right that the answer is as simple as that. But of course, the answer and the application are two different things. And turning these kind of values into common everyday mainstream perspectives, I think while it seems radical, and that's a sad measure of the state affairs we're living with. I think on an interpersonal level and an institutional level, these could be guiding principles which could have huge positive and influential change. And you're probably right. It begins with discussions amongst concerned citizens. It begins with a re-emphasis on our educational system to be producing the kind of people who think about these issues rather than just churning out people who are qualified to enter the workplace in certain positions. And it requires a set of cultural reorientations that go pretty deep and pretty far. But I love the way you put it. The guiding principles of equality and caring for one another are more than sufficient to take our culture in a positive direction. Yeah, and I would add to that, I think opportunities to people to get to the keys for achieving their goals in life are not equally distributed. We have an educational system right now, for example, that is very unequal in terms of the opportunities it provides. When I was a student many, many years ago, many, many, many years ago, I went to a free college. My first semester's tuition at City College of New York was $7. That's a single digit, $7. It was just fees. And I got to go to college and get a very good college education in the public system, just as if it was high school. It was virtually no cost at all. And then even to go to law school, at a private law school after that, it was very affordable. My debt was paid off in one year. And that's not available today. Now, the law school I went to uh, with all their expenses would cost $100,000 a year. And uh, I paid uh, maybe a tenth of that in, in all my costs, not even that. So the opportunities are not distributed the way they used to be. And I think we need to go back to that. And I think uh, New Mexico, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that we took a very big step along those lines and extended free college education opportunities in the last session. Yeah, Will. I think Paul's absolutely right. And I think the way this discussion is going raises a question about what is the role of individual moral cultivation and what is the relationship of structural transformation concerning producing 
more ethical individuals and a world that better reflects our generally shared ethical convictions. And while I think settling this debate is probably impossible, the emphasis that Paul puts, and I would put it too, on structural change is the right way to think about it, because the impact of structural changes is going to be more widespread in a shorter term than a collective approach to cultivating everybody's moral perspective faster. I guess the simple point to make is inequality is a huge obstacle to all of us achieving a degree of well-being. And therefore, if we diagnose the structural conditions that are the causes of inequality, addressing them is probably the first and most important area of concern for anyone who's interested in ethics at the everyday level. That's not to discount everything else we've said, and there is an important role. I know it's unfashionable to emphasize personal, moral self-cultivation at the moment, but that's vital too. But the impact, as I say, the impact that the changing of structural oppressive conditions in all areas of the world and all areas of society, the most likely to have a positive immediate impact concerning achieving those goals. You know, I think we've already demonstrated and that listeners can see that ethical situations arise constantly in everyday life. But my question is, do you think that having these mainstream or more mainstream discussions about ethics, bringing ethics more into the mainstream, do we stand more of a chance of making that structural change versus maybe changing the minds or the behavior of one individual here or there. Is that one thing that could be a positive that comes out of this? Yeah, I think that very much is a possibility. When we say comes out of this, I assume you're referring to the general move that we would advocate towards more conversations about ethics. Thank you for elaborating. Yes, Paul, exactly. I think really that's the source of how things develop. And I work in the legislature during the sessions as a bill analyst, and I see a little bit of what goes on behind the scenes and how things evolve. And whatever suspicions people may have, the public conversations that let legislators hear are often very much the driving force for them in terms of what legislation they choose to promote and and how they write it and how hard they work for it. Virtually all legislators that I know spend a lot of time talking with their constituents, listening to them, whether it be one-on-one or in group meetings. Sometimes they convene the meetings themselves. The more we're talking about things like taking care of people to give them the opportunities they need equally to achieve their goals, the more that that is likely to appear structurally as well through government. That's excellent to hear, Paul. Will, any comment? I think it's a hugely complicated and important issue, and it kind of depends, excuse the typical philosophical cop-out, what we mean by conversation. Because there are various kinds of situations where conversation is extremely effective, for positive individual and collective change. And there are situations where conversations are not effective. So the cliched example would be something like social media, a climate where people assert their opinion in an echo chamber where other people are asserting the same opinion. We may have the illusion of making progress, but actually all we're doing is having some people who currently share a particular view on an issue, re-articulating it again and again and again. 
So there's the idea that conversation to be productive has to require a degree of critical open-mindedness. The idea that when I enter into a conversation about ethics or an ethical issue, I go in with the assumption that I have something to learn from views which are other than that which I currently have. That's the first thing to say. But another thing to say, and that is a situation where actually having an open mind and giving too much to a different ethical view can itself be detrimental to achieving progressive goals. And this is a complex issue. So I'll give you an example. During gay rights activism at the abhorrent time in our history when homosexuality was criminalized, those who want to defend the rights of homosexuals to practice their lives freely and love who they want to love actually bought into the pathologization of homosexuality and said this shouldn't be if you think it's a pathology, then why are you criminalizing it? And this is an example where a conversation perhaps gives too much to the opponent because it bought into this idea that homosexuality was some kind of illness. And so this is a really fraught and complex issue. When do I need to assert, for example, equality? When my opponent, when someone I'm arguing against is actively disinvested in equality, Right? If they seem comfortable with social immobility, if they are bigoted, if they are extremely racist, homophobic, or misogynistic, what do you do in that situation? Well, I like to follow the advice of Daryl Davis, who's this blues singer turned genius ethical critical thinker. He's African-American, and he's actually converted several members of the Ku Klux Klan to let go of their racist views. And his argument was that you need to constantly work on your own ethical opinion and perspective. Critique it, but when you're in a conversation with someone who seems themselves so uninvested in dialogue and actually dogmatically committed to harmful and pernicious views, separate the views from the person. Respect the human, respect the capacity, respect their ability to transform, but also don't lose sight of the goal in mind. So it's a complex thing, and I know I'm sounding like a philosopher sitting on the fence. There are situations where giving too much to a dangerous and harmful view is something we should avoid. At the same time, we should be willing to remain open-minded and democratic and critical and resist conversations that just pat ourselves on the back or just reduce others to those that cannot be changed. So the art of ethical conversation is a very complicated one. And it's something we all have to work on and practice. But in a simple answer to your question, none of this can occur without the willingness to have these conversations at all. So that is a necessary first step. And Paul, you wanted to comment? Yeah, I just, I think Will's absolutely right on this. And I think in particular, the way social media is structured, the way that the cable networks are structured right now, radio, people just listen or join in on conversations with their own people that think the same way. And some really remarkably outrageous kinds of memes get out there that people people can get involved in and nobody criticizes them. Nobody provides any counterweight. And that's why you end up with a guy with a rifle showing up at a pizza place to liberate a bunch of children who are being held captive in the basement. Obviously, that wasn't true, but enough people said it and nobody criticized it that this gullible person thought he was going to be a hero and liberate these children. And people can be carried away by these ridiculous concepts because they hear it on television or watch it on the internet. Will? I wanted to make another point about how we enter into ethical conversations too. And I think there is a tendency in our culture to announce immediately whatever one's intuitive response to a particular issue is. But I think the kinds of ethical 
conversations that are optimally productive are ones where we consider the goals of our conversation. What are we trying to do in this particular conversation? For example, this conversation we're having about ethics is intended for a popular radio audience who haven't signed up to a philosophy class. And so I'm attempting to converse very differently than if I was teaching a group of graduate students, for example. But this is something that we should apply in all walks of life. When you are discussing perhaps with a friend who you agree with their opinion, but you think perhaps they're verging on dogmatism, then invite a bit of critique. If you are conversing with someone that you don't know too well, and they're expressing an extreme view, you might want to be more compassionate to find some common ground, and then have a more modest goal about what you can get from that conversation. And so the question itself is, how am I using my conversations? Am I using them to tell the world what I think is true? Or am I using my conversations to try and be ethical, be a better person and help those around me to be better people? And I think that's an important factor in what makes a conversation ethical, even if it's not necessarily about ethics. Well, that's a great place to land, Will. You're listening to Ethics Now, conversations about ethics. I'm your host, Kathleen Sabo. One of our followers posted online that, quote, an ethical person knows it would be wrong to cheat, while a moral person won't cheat. What I get here is that the poster is making a distinction between those who have considered ethics and ethical principles and applied these to come to the conclusion that it would be wrong to cheat versus those who follow a moral code that says, don't cheat, cheating is wrong, and apply that code. Will, is that a fair interpretation, do you think? I think it's an accurate description of a natural condition in that we can have theoretical and abstract perspectives on something and believe them to be true, but without a certain practical commitment, we don't cultivate ourselves into someone who acts that way. And that's precisely what the Greeks meant by virtue. A virtue is the combination of an ethical understanding with the practical commitment to turn that understanding into action, because we don't necessarily already have inclinations and active dispositions to follow up on our ethical ideals. I would, however, resist the temptation to sort of accuse people of being hypocritical, because that can be an overly negative perspective. It takes time to turn our ideas of what is right into action. Just consider a healthy relationship, the compromises and adaptations that one has to enter into to have a successful relationship require figuring out how best to care for somebody and then turning that into practice. So I think it's an accurate description of a human condition rather than necessarily a criticism. And it's something that philosophers and ethicists like myself are often accused of. And there is a danger. You can remain in this non-committal theoretical realm, investigating the rights and wrongs of an issue, and you can sort of lose yourself in the complexity of it and then walk away with a feeling that you're being an ethical person because you've been thinking about ethical issues all day. But until you actually put it into practice, are you being ethical? And I would agree with the listener's comment that no, that's the very first step that has to be realized. And that's where the real difficulty, that's where the real I think deep personal honesty has to come in and go, what do I believe? 
should I believe this? And then once you've arrived at that incredibly difficult decision about what you think is the right thing to do, cultivating yourself into the kind of person who would do it. And most of the ethical traditions of the world, the sort of religious traditions, we might say, are as invested into this through storytelling and through the idea of shame, even using emotions like shame and guilt so that one actually eventually becomes so preemptively ashamed or guilty about a certain form of behavior that you cultivate yourself in such a way so as to never act that way. Native American traditions, for example, have a lot of songs that involves shaming people for acting badly. And from the outside, it might seem like this is a little odd. This seems a bit little judgmental and harsh, but this is the role that it plays in their culture. They practice cultivating an attitude of preemptive shame to the extent that you make yourself into someone who wouldn't do something shameful. I think the religious traditions have got a lot to tell us about this and needs to contribute to the academic skill of thinking about purely in an abstract sense what is right and what is wrong to actually committing on a daily level on a minute level to little steps to try and cultivate one's ethical ideas into a way of life. Well, I think that there's an excellent point. There are two parts to the equation, the abstract thinking and then the practical application of it. But you've resisted the bait that I put out there. But I think we need to go to this point because I think there are probably some listeners who are saying, what's the difference between ethics and morals? I know it can be an incredibly complex topic, but I want us to to assist anybody out there who's thinking they're the same thing necessarily. How would you separate the two, ethics and morals, or how have others separated the two? Is there a way to assist people in making that distinction? Well, ethics, generally speaking, refers to a whole life. It refers to the idea of living a good life. So ethical decisions, according to the Greek origins of the word, refer to all those decisions that we make about leading a good life. Now, the Greek traditions will argue that cultivating things like compassion, friendliness, and kindness are essential to leading a good life. But later traditions separated this idea of happiness from right and wrong. And that's where we might get the distinction between ethics and morality and morals. So someone's morals are often a set of principles that one is committed to, right? So a moral might be do not cheat, do not lie, do not steal. That would be morals with an S. And then if we're talking about morality, Morality is the name given to our general conception that enables us to come up with our morals. So, for example, someone might say, I believe in equality. That's my system of morality, is the achievement of equality. And then their answer to specific issues like, should we have free education should higher education be free? They would say, yes, because that enables us to achieve this wider goal of equality. So morality is a broader conception, sort of fundamental conception from which we get our morals. And ethics, generally speaking, at least in my discipline, refers to the wider conception of what actions can I do that lead to a flourishing, full life for me and because it necessarily entails others for others as well. And hopefully that's helpful for some. Paul, you are often teaching ethics to people who already have an ethical code to follow. Do you find it important to teach that ethics exists outside of a code, that there are ethical principles that can be applied separate and apart from a code? And, and what are some of those? We should just set some of those out. Yeah, very much so. In several of my classes, I, I actually make a strong point 
that the ethics codes we have, I mean, first of all, are imperfect. They're written by legislators or by regulations that are issued by agencies, and they can't think of everything when they're doing it, or they can't always express themselves to actually say what they mean. So if you just follow that ethical code and say, that's it, that's all I need to do, you're really missing out on the bigger picture of how people deserve, especially from public servants who have a lot of influence over people's lives and decisions that make a big difference to them, who are spending the, the money of taxpayers and who have the public trust to, or should have public trust, to do things that government should be doing for them. So they need to go beyond the rules and the laws, and they need to integrate into their decision-making an internalized set of ethical rules that are pretty much the same for government officials throughout, internal rules that they have to say, well, yeah, okay, I'm following the rule, but what about these other considerations that aren't in the rules? Should I be addressing those as well? And I mentioned earlier the openness in government. Should I go beyond what the rule says and provide more opportunities for people to see the decision-making process, for people to comment on it and have their thoughts taken into consideration? What we've heard from students and others when we've talked about ethical values and principles are things like honesty, integrity, concern for the other. Will, is there, are there more you want to just put out there for our listeners to consider and, and see whether they want to adopt them as their own ethical principles or values? I think the idea that I mentioned from Buddhist philosophy that I try and follow, and that's try and be sympathetic and charitable concerning the actions of others, and try and be less charitable and more rigorous with analyzing your own actions, is a familiar ethical ideal that is very challenging to put into practice, but very healthy. And I would caution that one should never view one's failures as terrible and awful. This is a guiding light to just try and judge oneself first before you judge others. Paul, anything you want to add in terms of values or principles or in response to Will? Yeah, I thought of another example that I think has a lot of application in the office, no matter whether it's government or not, and that is the use of email. It's interesting because I think people who've had to stand face-to-face to communicate to other people, or on the phone at least, in the past, have been more constrained, more restrained in what they say, and not been as extreme as as you hear now. We have to realize that social media, including email, have to be used carefully to avoid losing some of the human contact that we've had in the past that restrains us. So act ethically with regard to things that you will put out for mass consumption. Yes, Will, you have some brief comments? Yeah, I'd just like to add the previous thing I mentioned about judging oneself harsher than others and other references we've put on restrictions of one's own behavior on the basis of respect respecting quality and human dignity of others. I think this should be put in balance with the Greek emphasis on joy and happiness. And we should remember that ethics is a celebratory practice. The goal is one where everybody, where the optimum number of people get to flourish. And that's something to love. It's something to be excited about. It's something to be motivated and inspired by. Ethics shouldn't be thought of as restrictions on some selfish goal of well-being. No, there's a collective goal of well-being that will intensify the beauty of life for as many people as possible. And we should remember that ethics is a liberative, celebratory practice as much as it is a regulative and restrictive practice. Well, that's an excellent and a positive frame to put upon this conversation. Thank you for that. 
You're listening to Ethics Now. I'm your host, Kathleen Sabo. We've asked a series of questions. Among them, what is ethics? How do we take ethics from a theoretical concept and make it applicable for everyday life and situations? What are the common threads between ethical situations we encounter or consider? And why should ethics be brought into the mainstream in both thoughtful and transparent ways? And I'm wondering, Paul and Will, is there one question, whether in this list or beyond it, that you would like to suggest listeners consider as they ponder the role of ethics in their everyday lives? And Paul, I'll, I'll start with you. Actually, I'll, I'll cheat a little bit and say a, a question plus a practice. The practice would be that people actually have conversations with their colleagues, whether it's at work or whether it's family or groups of friends, have conversations that do consider what is the right thing to do? What is the ethical thing for us to be doing in whatever contexts come up to make it very realistic as an issue? So that would be the practice that I would ask people to undertake. And then as far as the question, it was it's related. And the question would be, Beyond the rules that I have to follow, whether it's a code of conduct in my office or, or just the laws uh, that, that govern what I do, beyond all that, what should I know and be thinking about as the right thing, the thing that's going to be the ethical thing in my treatment of other people on top of what my obligations are? Thank you for that, Paul. And Will, I turn to you. Is there something you'd like to suggest listeners consider as they ponder the role of ethics in their everyday lives? You had something like a question and a practice as well. And this is a more interpersonal one. But I just like to say, I think Paul's question there is incredibly important and a really good one. And I just add a little bit about, am I doing things because this is the way I've always done them? Am I doing things because I can? Or am I doing things for some goal that includes the well-being of others beyond myself? That's a question that turns into a practice. A more specific one that I wanted to speak to just from my own personal experience of interpersonal relationships. And that is what I said before about the art of conversation. When discussing an ethical issue, when discussing ethics, when discussing anything that you think is important, what are you trying to achieve with this conversation? Are you trying to just express your existing views? Are you offering dialogue? Are you offering learning? Are you thinking about the person you are talking to as much as you are what you want to say? And Will and Paul, I believe we have achieved our goal of having an excellent conversation with you all today on this topic of ethics in everyday lives. Thanks to both of you. We appreciate it. I just want to leave listeners with a question that came up for me. Do I want to live in a world where ethics is not applied to everyday life? You can answer that for yourself. Ethics Now is made possible by a grant from the New Mexico Humanities Council and the generous support of KUNM Public Radio, 89.9 FM in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the nonpartisan nonprofit New Mexico Ethics Watch, and by Davis Law New Mexico, an Albuquerque, New Mexico law firm protecting your right to equality and fairness for over 40 years. Your feedback to the program is welcome and can be made at ethicsnow.org. That's ethicsnow.org. I'm Kathleen Sabo. Many thanks for listening. Be well.